This morning we're going to, we have two more lessons, I think, maybe three lessons left in this series on who will be saved. And as we've been going through this, we've teased this idea of calling on his name uh, several times as we've read Romans 10 several times. We've read Romans 10 probably half of the weeks that we've done this series, and it's one of the pivotal ideas in Romans 10. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we've looked at those things many times before. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For as no, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then this quote that we've, been, we've read several times that we're going to talk about more in depth today. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Bobby picked pretty much the perfect song. Bob left, of course. Who knows where he went? Uh, I will call upon the Lord. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. This is about as clear as it gets, right? I don't know that there's as many phrases. There's probably three phrases that are this clear in the New Testament about who will be saved. And, and that's the question we've been asking, right? It does not get any clearer than this. Who will be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It literally says that in the words, right? So what does that mean, right? This is the question. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? And the surface level answer, of course, is to say that all one needs to do to be saved is ask God to save you. That's it. That's the whole thing. And now we're done. We can all go home, right? That's the surface level answer. But of course, we've looked at repentance. We've looked at confession. We've looked at belief, all those different things. This is again, and, and I've said this over and over again because it's such a critical point, this idea of inclusive interpretation, what we started with at the very beginning, why it matters so much that to understand a subject, you have to look at all of what scripture says about that particular subject. So this idea, calling on the name of the Lord, what does that entail? Now, this phrase is actually a quote from the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 30, as God is, pro oh, Joel is prophesying, God is the one prophesying, of course, through the prophet Joel, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon shall uh, to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is where that quote is from, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and there shall be those who escape. Who escape what? Judgment, destruction, wrath, the thing that's going to come in the great day of the Lord. Uh, as the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. There's a duality of calling here, isn't there? There's both those who call on the name of the Lord and those whom the Lord calls. That this is some, some, some sort of reciprocal thing. This is uh, not just one way. That God is going to call those who will be survivors, and everyone who calls on him shall be saved. When did this come to pass, this prophecy? Which we know, of course, fortunately, because Peter told us. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Peter standing with the eleven. This is, of course, the first sermon in Acts chapter 2. As the Spirit descends upon them, and then they all start speaking in tongues. And everybody's like, are these guys drunk? Uh, and Peter says, uh, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, these people, we the apostles, right? The, him and the other guys are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This text 
This is what he quotes. We're not going to have it up on the screen. He then talks about what we just read. And then he lists several prophecies from, about David, several things about David, and, and you will not allow, abandon his soul to Hades, nor allow your holy one to see corruption, talking about uh, prophecies that David made. He ends the sermon, and, and I've always thought this, this is one of the most brutal ways to end a sermon, in verse 36, after he talks about, and, and to be clear, let's get the flow of this right. He begins his sermon with this idea of what Joel said. That these miraculous things have come to pass, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He specifically says that in the sermon. So then at the end of the sermon, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why? Because he just got done talking about destruction and wrath and judgment that's going to come, as the prophet Joel said. And then he ends this with, oh, and you killed the Savior, you killed the Messiah. He's going to hold you responsible for the death of his son. So they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What are we going to do about that? Well, Peter already told them, didn't he? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he could have said at this juncture, just ask God to save you. He could have said that. That would have been maybe a valid, and thinking about the interpretation of Joel, he reads this prophecy from Joel, and Joel says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes through this sermon and concludes this with, you need, of course, forgiveness because of your sin. And then they ask him, what do we do now? And he does not tell them, just ask God to be saved. He tells them specifically what? Of course, we, we know this because we've read this. This is the first sermon. What he says here will set the tone for every other sermon that follows. This is the beginning of this great, momentous thing that is going to happen in the next, well, really, 2,000 years, even to today. We are part of this thing that started right here, right? We're part of what began. And what does Peter tell them first? As he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, right? We know that. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. In that, that phrase there, in the name of, we'll come back to that in a moment. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We see the same duality here, don't we? That Joel, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then God will have a remnant of the survivors of those who he called. So Peter, when he quotes the prophet Joel and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he tells them, right, this promise is for everyone whom the Lord will call to himself. The same reciprocal nature of this call. That he is calling me and I am calling on him, and what does he say to do then? Repent and be immersed. I thought about changing all the words in this to immersed. You know my stance on transliterations. Does he tell them to see, simply ask God for forgiveness? No, he doesn't. Now, to be clear, he could have told them that. Right? He has an option of what to say here. It is a possibility that he would tell them if that was what was necessary, if that's what they needed to do. He could have said that. Just ask Jesus for forgiveness. He could, that was something he literally could have said. The fact that he chose not to says a lot about what God expects of us. Now, note again. Everyone who calls will be saved. 
And then here he says, this is the call of God. We're going to get back to that as we go through. From the beginning, calling on, and when I say the beginning, from the beginning of the church, from this first beginning point up until now, calling on the name of the Lord has been tied to a specific action. This theme is repeated in Acts chapter 9. Of course, this is the uh, conversion of Saul, and we know that there's a number of different accounts of this. Uh, We're going to read from two of them today. As Saul, of course, he is one of the great persecutors of the church. He is dragging them to prison. He's casting his votes against them. He's he's hounding them. And Ananias knows this, obviously. When Ananias is told by God, hey, go talk to this guy Saul, this is what he says. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is going to play a crucial role in this story, and here he identifies God's people as who? Those who call on your name. That's what he connects in his mind. The people that he is persecuting are the people that call on Jesus' name, right? Not God's name, not Yahweh's name. Because the the Jews were called, Paul would have been one who called on Yahweh's name as a member of the Israelite nation, as a uh, Jew of Jews, as he calls himself later, right? So this is specifically not Yahweh's name, but Jesus' name, right? The Lord, calling on the name of the Lord. Those, that's how Ananias identified the Christians, those who were calling on Jesus' name. Later, when Paul is accounting what happened, so he is converted in Acts 9, and then later on he tells the story a couple of times. Here's what he says, what happens next. So he appeared, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded, and this thing happens, and he says, go talk to this guy. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me. This is later after Paul's traveled the rest of the way and he's waiting for something to happen and he's he's what is he going to do he's blind brother Saul receive your sight this is what Ananias said at that very hour I received my sight and saw him and he said the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one which he literally did see the righteous one right and to hear a voice from his mouth for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard the appearance of Jesus And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized or immersed and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Same phrase, right? What does Ananias seem to think that calling on his name means? What is an integral part of doing that is being immersed to wash away your sins. Now again, Ananias here, being told, I think, what to say by God, maybe. Of course, Ananias has already had a conversation with God about this, and God could have told Ananias to tell Paul to just ask for forgiveness. He could have done that if that's what was necessary. Ananias could have said that. Now rise, Paul, and ask Jesus into your heart. But he did not say that, did he? Rise and be immersed and wash away your sins, calling on his name. How is he to call on his name? I think it's fairly evident in the text. Now, Peter makes this uh, connection more explicit later on in one of his letters, 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21. 
because, and we've talked about this text uh, last week when we talked about the spirit, Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison. Last Sunday night we talked about that. Because these spirits formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you, pretty clear, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what immersion is. Not that it automatically saves you. Not that it's some magic spell. Not that we're treating this like a vending machine. That if I put the quarter in then salvation comes out. But I am appealing to God. Please give me a good con. I'm trying to do the best. I'm trying to do what you've told me to do. I'm trying to follow your commands. I'm submitting to your will in this respect. I believe who you are. I believe in your promises. I want to do the right thing. I want to turn from my sins. And I'm going to be immersed into Christ because I know that it's what you've commanded of me. Please cleanse my conscience. Because he's the only one that can do that, right? What are you doing if not calling on the name of of the Lord. And again, it's very integral. What does he say? Be baptized in the very beginning there in Acts chapter 2. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That idea of the name calling on it through the appeal of immersion. So our immersion into Christ is an integral part of what this calling on the name of the Lord means. Several times we've seen it connected, right? It's not like it's vague or misunderstandable or very hard to understand. They have been very clear about what that means. Now, of course, well, you know, this is not the only part because we've already read some verses that connect calling on the name of the Lord to other activities, right? In 1 Peter 3 and Acts 22, Peter and Paul connect immersion. But in other passages, in Acts 2, Peter also connects to repentance, right? Joel prophesied, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What shall we do? Just go get wet. No. Repent and be immersed, and you will be saved. In Romans 10, which we've read, we read already, we read a lot. What two things did he connect to calling on the name of the Lord? Belief and confession. That's what he said, right? That if you believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. He says that specifically. And then later on in that same text, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we see it's not just connected to immersion. It's also connected to repentance. It's also connected to belief and confession. And this phrase is also used to describe the post-salvation life of the Christian too. Uh, 1 Peter 1.17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then what? Just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You've been saved. Just live however you want. No. If you call on him, then what? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Be careful to conduct yourselves, live and act and do things that are what God, who you are calling on, wants. 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If I am calling on his name, specifically asking him to forgive me, that's what I'm doing, right, when I call on his name, Jesus, please forgive me because of my sin, and, and I'm doing the things that you want me to do, then what? After I have been forgiven, after I have this cleansed conscience, then as I continue to call on him, that should change the way I live, 
right? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and some fellowship too, right? He says along with those, it's not just me, there's going to be some fellowship going on there. So when we think about this phrase, calling on his name, it's connected to all these different ideas, right? It's connected to your belief in Romans 10. It's connected to repentance in Acts chapter 2. It's connected to confession in Romans 10. It's connected to immersion several times. And here it's connected to the idea of living righteously. Or as we said in like the third lesson, obedience. You want to call on the name of the Lord, you need to do all of those things, right? Again, we can't just pick and choose a scripture that we want to use to define a thing. If you want to understand a thing, you need to look at all of the phrases, or all of the scriptures, rather, associated with that thing. And so as we look at these various scriptures about calling on the name of the Lord, I think it becomes fairly clear what is intended by that phrase. Is this process. These things that ultimately, and I like what he says it here, right? It ultimately stems from a pure heart. That I'm not just doing this begrudgingly. I'm not doing these things sort of trying to trick God. That I'm going to sort of, and, and this is sometimes I think how maybe unintentionally it comes across. That it really is listed like a magic spell. Right? That I have these components of this spell and I'm going to say them in the right order and then magically I'm going to be forgiven. If that's how you view salvation, then I'm going to sort of just sort of force God to forgive me by doing these things and then he'll have no choice because I've sort of, I've sort of tra- tricked him into it. Right? Even though I don't care about what he wants, I don't have any desire to follow him, I don't really love him, I don't really have any intention of changing, that I'm sort of going to go through this formula and sort of through this scientific reaction, he'll have to save me. You do not have a pure heart. You're not calling on him from a place of goodness and mercy and love and faith, right? These things come from what is inside of us, how we think about God, how we feel about his forgiveness. Calling on the name of the Lord should be a life altering event, something that changes the way we live for the rest of our lives. And I will continue to call on him, right? Which means what? I'm going to continue to confess, as we looked at several weeks ago. I'm going to continue to repent because I keep sinning, right? I'm going to continue to do those things as part of this continual calling on his name, hoping that he will continue to forgive me. We're going to conclude this series next week. I haven't decided if next week or two weeks, but we're going to have a more significant discussion of immersion because right now we just have talked about the necessity of it. Uh, Next week I want to look at what exactly is going on when we are immersed. But I hope this lesson, and we're going to get done way early. Yeah, super early. Congratulations, everybody. Uh, I hope what this lesson is done is reinforced and instilled in us the necessity of these things that we've talked about. That these things that we've talked about over this series are not optional extras, right? If it is true that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, then I need to do everything that Scripture connects 
calling on the name of the Lord with. Everything that Scripture associates as an action that is calling on the name of the Lord, those are the things that I need to do. Believing in Him who promises salvation. Confessing to both Him and to others my sins and my belief in Him. Repenting and changing and trying to live a better life, trying to do His will instead of my own. And yes, ultimately being immersed in water, in baptism, connected with Him in that way. That's what it means to call on His name. And to be honest, I'm hope, I hope you're ready to do that today. Maybe you are. I think there's water in here. Yep, there's water right there. We could do it today, right? We could do it. Don't wait. It would be really tragic if God came back in two hours, wouldn't it? And you decided not to do it. Or in an hour. Please come. 